Hello, my name is Jonathan Swift, the Content Director of Insurance Post, and welcome to the fourth podcast as part of the Future Focus 2030 series brought to you by Insurance Post in association with The Risk, a series where we set a hypothesis about how an issue important to the future success of the insurance sector might look at the end of the decade and get the market to comment on it. Now, today we're focusing on climate change and a hypothesis that, among other things, has seen insurance companies do their part to promote the climate agenda by offering new schemes and products to help ensure those invested in boosting renewable energy production, offering more competitive rates to incentivize the use of cleaner energy, and withdrawing investment in business associated with, with, associated with the construction and operation of coal-fired or other carbon-heavy fossil fuel plants. Now, for today's podcast, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Dr. Richard Houston, Head of Strategy, Environment and Climate Change at the Risk of Maplecroft, and Shane Latchman, the Vice President and Managing Director of ARR UK. Hello, Richard and Shane. Hello. Hello. So if I can come to you, uh, first of all, Richard, how are you seeing the insurance market evolve with regards to modelling and mapping climate change? I mean, I think sort of more broadly, if you, if you look back over the, uh, recent years, you've seen several sectors have have begun really assessing climate risks. I mean, to, to some extent, at least um, at Verisk Maplecroft, we specialize in helping organizations identify and quantify a range of risks, um, including climate change. And probably, you know, we began looking at uh, climate risk about 10 to 15 years ago and developing tools that helped organizations like the UN and, and government agencies sort of identify where climate change could um, materialize more rapidly and where the significant impacts would be. Now, at that point in time, we were looking at uh, helping those organizations identify where humanitarian risks could be uh, more rapidly evolving. But fast forward a decade and what we're doing now is using the same approach, albeit with more sophisticated tools and smarter models. But fundamentally, the principles are the same. We're using these mapping tools, we're using these risk assessments to help multinational companies across all sectors identify where there are vulnerabilities in their operations, in their supply chains, and even in their customer bases. And the objectives are the same. It's, it's all about understanding what and where uh, climate change impacts could be um, most likely materializing and where they're going to be most keenly felt and ultimately at the end of the day what the what the impact will be on on business and by doing that it helps inform decision making it helps inform capital allocation and ultimately the aim is to you know build a more resilient business and build a more resilient industry Shane yeah, I mean, from from my end, f- focusing more on the on the insurance industry, all of this is fairly new, really. You know, the market quantifying climate change risk, uh, it, it, it's a fairly new thing, and it's largely to do with recent uh, regulation, particularly here in Europe. So, for example, many of you would be familiar with the Prudential Regulatory Authority 2019 General Insurance Stress Test uh, scenarios and their um, supervisory statement, the SS319. There's also the TCFD, uh, Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures uh, Framework, which many companies have been reporting to and, and many will have to, uh, looking, at, looking at how things are going uh, very soon. And so that's led to great interest in modeling and mapping climate change. But it's, it's happened quite suddenly. 
So if you know you, you were asking about how the insurance market has evolved in terms of, of modeling and mapping uh, climate risk, it, it, we've gone from assessing current risk to, to future risk. And so it, if we're frank, the deliverables aren't as mature as they w- would be for, for day-to-day cat modeling. You know, that said, um, a big push recently was that the PRA defined uh, some some quite specific scenarios in those 2019 general insurance stress tests, and their prescribed impacts were, for example, on sea level rise, um, or increased hurricane frequency, and, and rainfall runoff. And then various modeling firms, including uh, AIR, which is a business unit of Verisk, uh, then provided the capability to quantify these scenarios through augmentations to to their CAD models. And then on the mapping side, there are flood hazard maps, which uh, look at the change in, for example, the 100-year flood hazard maps and extent, and we illustrated these in in, PRA, in the PRA's climate change framework document, uh, which was separate and, and, and released uh, in, in 2019, and there are also products on the market uh, that do this. Fair to say, as, as, as I've been alluding to at the start, however, all of this is really quite nascent. And the industry is, is, is building capabilities up fast and maturing to understand what's useful, uh, not only being led by regulation, but also from a, from a business strategy point of view. Another evolutionary change is the industry demonstrating a, a deeper concern for longer time horizons. Now we're seeing, uh, you, you know, traditionally it was it, it, it was the next year or so that was that was of interest, and, and now we're seeing more attention towards 10 to 15, even up to 30 year time horizons, and that being used for for business planning and and, and so on. And and I think sorry, just to pick up on on that last point, that Shane, that's a really interesting point because I think, you know, we're seeing big advances around climate modeling. Um, We've seen improvements in both the climate models themselves, but also, you know, computing capacity has has gone through the roof roof in recent years. So the the ability to run these simulations much faster and at much higher resolutions is enabling some of those solutions to come to market. Um, We're now able to to resolve so much more of the complexities of our Earth system. You, You know, yes, there are still some uncertainty there, but that in general, there's a lot more confidence in these climate change projections, in this, these modeling and mapping techniques. So that when it comes to taking business and investment decisions off the back of that, there is the confidence in, in which to do that. And I think that's particularly important um, for when, uh, when it comes to that increasing, de- increasing demand for disclosure that, that Shane touched on there around the, the TCFD, et cetera that we're seeing this demand, but we're also seeing that at the same time that these techniques and these models are improving and the capacity to you know, generate information to, to fulfill those disclosure requirements is coming to, is coming to bear. And taking that issue of, of confidence, and I'll come to you first on this, Shane, given the perceived escalation in climate change risk, how true is it that we can still use historic data to predict the future? And if not, how is the market using data more intelligent, intelligently to quantify these risks? Yeah, I think that's a that, that's a great question. I and mean, automatically, you think, well, climate change, everything worse, including natural catastrophes like hurricanes. And I think as we visualize it easily in our minds, we can think it's it's happening now. And it seems every major catch, catastrophe, when you look at the the media, has climate change mentioned these days. And if you're not careful, you then connect the two things directly, right? You say this catastrophe was caused uh, by climate change, versus what what really being um, being said and, and investigated is is that this catastrophe was made more likely uh, due to climate change um, in, in, in some cases. 
And so often I feel the way that we perceive the risk is connected with the speed with which we recall images in our minds and, and the actual images that we recall in our minds uh, themselves. So we think climate change and we, we see media reports of disasters and, and, death and death and destruction. But for natural catastrophes specifically, uh, thinking at hurricanes and, and floods and so forth, um, different aspects aren't equal. It, 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 the specifics really matter. If you're looking at a certain peril, like wind or flood, where it is, are we talking about the US or the UK? What's the timeline? Now, mid-century, end of century, etc. And so interestingly, and not often widely appreciated, is that really when we're thinking about the disasters that are the most material for insurers, like hurricanes, um, they may not actually have the greatest consensus as to the impacts from climate change. That is not often widely, uh, widely um, appreciated. Um, other uh, perils, certainly, for example, bushfires and coastal flooding, for example, sea level rise and so forth, uh, have greater consensus, but actually are often less material um, to, to insurance portfolios typically. You know, another not uh, always widely appreciated point is that most models within the catastrophe modeling industry, including uh, from, from AIR, wind and flood, etc., with a notable exception, of course, of U.S. hurricane, are just based on the last few decades of data. So we go back to your question, looking at uh, how, how true is it that we can use historical data to, to predict the future. Well, actually, if we're looking at the last few decades of data, and that's largely due to, to data availability to, to, to build our models, they would tend to represent uh, current risk compared to, of course, if they were using data uh, before the industri Industrial Revolution, looking at the last one or two, uh, two centuries. So, I mean, combining those two points, that it depends what peril you're talking about, wind, um, flood, et cetera, and given that we're looking at the most recent data uh, in terms of building our catalogs, last few decades, as I just mentioned, historic data can be quite representative of, of current risk and, and to represent changes in the near future. When we're looking further out, though, um, at those changes, um, it, it, that, that, uh, that assumption can change a bit. Um, certainly in terms of looking at the near future and, and, and close to that on the order of uh, one or two decades, we're not looking at structurally different type of events. And so therefore, we can say the historical record does, does help us. Um, in terms of looking further out, we are doing internal research uh, to better understand um, these climate change in induced trends and how those events could change in the future. And uh, when we're looking at, at, at far into the future, you, we, we would consider building catalogs based more on these expected uh, changes as a result of climate change with information from, from model projections, so i.e. Uh, building them uh, from scratch from, from those uh, physical models themselves. Richard? Yeah, and I also think there's there's an element of using historic data also helps distinguish between medium term and large scale oscillations in the climate, such as uh, El Nino, such as the uh, Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation. Distinguishing between those features and the climate change signal, you you need that historic data. And we know that both uh, El Nino and uh, the AMO affect hurricane activity in the US, for example. So if we're thinking about projecting uh, tropical cyclone activity for the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years even, not only are you looking for that climate change signal and how that's affecting you know, activity, but you also need to understand those underlying, if you like, those natural uh, multi-year or decadal cycles. You also need to understand how those cycles are being impacted by climate change itself, but that's possibly a separate conversation. And I think in that respect, there will always be a need for historic observations. It will always play a role. Um, and then, you know, a second factor, and, and Shane touched on it, is that that factor of materiality. 
So more broadly, you know, a key aspect of assessing climate risk is about understanding how your organization, how your company can be affected by weather or climate shocks or climate, you know, longer term climate events. And often the key to doing that is through the use of historic records. It's looking back through time, understanding how you as a business were impacted during that event. So there's a lot of companies who are doing that at the moment, um, particularly around looking at, at COVID and, and their supply chain and, and those impacts. But ultimately, understanding that relationship between event and impact, understanding that materiality is going to be the foundation that, that can be used when you're looking at uh, stress testing or scenario analysis, for example. And obviously, scenario analysis, again, is particularly important when you're thinking about the, the TCFD recommendations and the requirements. And it's all about understanding how, you know, under different emissions pathways in a, in a two degree world, for example, or a four degree world, how those impacts may affect you as a business. And without ultimately at the end, without that historic data to, to draw that relationship out, um, you're, you're going to be stuck in pretty much just a, a guessing game. So it, for me, historic data will always uh, have a role and it will always um, sort of have two roles in not just distinguishing between the climate signal, but also helping underpin, you know, under that, that materiality factor, underpin understanding how climate can affect you as a business. Now, Richard, you mentioned uh, COVID-19 there. How do you think the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the insurance industry's thinking around climate change, uh, climate change risk, and how could this influence the future? Um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's, a, it's a great question. Um, if I had a crystal ball, I'm sure I could answer that and, and uh, make fortunes. But, you know, we, we've noticed a lot of our clients at Verisk Maplecroft are re-examining their business models. Um, they're trying to look at what's what's happened to their business at the moment and uh, factor some of those elements into kind of stress testing their strategy, if you like. So, yeah, I think COVID-19 has helped. Um, well, you know, if you, if you can frame it that way, it's helped identify weaknesses, for example, in supply chains. And it's forced companies temporarily, at least, to become a bit more agile, to rethink um, not just their sourcing strategies, but also rethink how they operate as a business. And they've had to do that in, in fairly short term. Obviously, climate change is, uh, you know, is it slow onset um, phenomena, um, but it is an external driver in the same way that COVID-19 has been. Um, so there are parallels there. So, you know, as part of that reassessment, we're seeing clients that are trying to understand for example you know who are our key suppliers how have they been affected by COVID-19 how could they be affected by climate change do those impacts look the same um, for example if you're looking at a, a supplier who's been a strategic partner for years all of a sudden they don't look so reliable if they're facing you know increasing downtime due to more frequent hurricane activity for example. Shane? Yeah, I mean, an interesting artifact we noticed uh, during lockdown was was companies focusing on on getting their day to day business done, but not necessarily focusing on on nice to have. So, so essentially, not making large changes unless they were very much already uh, involved in, in in making those changes uh, to begin with. And and one exception to that, therefore, is is certainly is climate change. It was definitely on companies' minds um, before we even uh, went 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 into lockdown. And so, therefore, at some level, this 
current COVID-19 crisis can seem existential. And then that, that brings parallels, right, uh, in your mind with other existential crises that we as human beings have been hearing and sometimes ignoring recently, uh, which is climate change. And so just as, as, as Richard mentioned, we saw a continued increase, uh, a continued interest in quantification of climate change throughout, uh, throughout the pandemic. Cynically, you could say this is mostly to do with regulation, companies preparing for the uh, biennial exploratory scenarios in 2021, uh, which uh, the Bank of England is, is releasing for, for banks and insurers and TCFD and, and so on and so forth. But certainly we have seen uh, some companies looking at how they should be um, thinking of climate change uh, in terms of making business decisions. So, for example, if you think that uh, uh, tropical cyclones in the northern hemisphere will be uh, tracking more north, something called poleward migration, could I use that information to determine um, where I should ride more or less risk, if it, um, depending on how that risk is, is, is changing? And so I think there'll be even more interest in climate change coming out of COVID-19 as companies see the importance of resilience and even you know, how to strategically outthink their competitors. So Shane, can I just ask, uh, how do you see uh, reinsurance and insurance companies and brokers adapting internally to approach climate change risks in the future in terms of investing in research and recruiting for new roles, for example? Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at the industry over the last few decades, you had firms with staff with relatively little scientific background, and that was virtually all concentrated with modeling firms. So i.e., if you if you did some science related degree, you went to work with a with a modeling company. Um, later on, especially with Solvency 2, this own the risk mantra, firms started to hire more staff. And those staff were involved in model validation, R&D, uh, research and development, et cetera. And they became more self-sufficient and, and, and frankly, a lot more scientific. And so that, that gap tended, tended to reduce. So therefore, we're now on this upward trajectory. And it is upward, whereby at least regulatorily, you're expected to do more on climate change and, frankly, rely on cookie-cutter output less. So an example of a cookie-cutter output is, oh, I just take some numbers that my modeling agency gave to me. Uh, rather than actually owning it and, and understanding it and making it bespoke to to my own my own firm my own exposure, so it's more about being uh, tailored to to, be, to your organization now. So therefore, I, I do see great investment on this upward tra trajectory, uh, but of course, it's towards a limit, right? Uh, um, you know, these these types of roles are a cost, and so um, uh, there's only a certain limit in, in, in terms of that upward trajectory. Um, but there is a great supply of it, particularly in London with great, um, great universities here and also in the UK uh, and the wider Europe, which provide a solid foundation now, much more to directly almost go in a conveyor belt away from university to um, from, from that sort of academia into industry compared to how it was a decade or, or more ago. Richard? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think Shane's comments are, are really interesting there. Um, as as someone who's worked in the area of climate change for the last 15 years or so, um, I, I, I started my career in academia um, running climate models. And at that point in time, the job opportunities in the private sector were, were very limited, as, as, as Shane's uh, pointed out. But I, you know, I would agree with him in the sense that I think this has changed significantly in the last five years or so. Um, and not just in the insurance industry. I mean, I think we've seen across the board from uh, institutional investors, energy, retail, the investment in that in-house capability, both in terms of R&D and human capital, has increased dramatically. And I think that there's probably, you know, 
as well as as the the factors that Shane pointed out, there's there's probably three things for that. You know, it it is partly driven by uh, the related regulatory obligations that are coming uh, along, like TCFD, for example. But I also think there's a realization there that there is a real commercial opportunity here, both in terms of you know minimizing losses, but also you know for maximizing opportunities. Um, and then, uh, as Shane mentioned, I, I think there's also, you know, the, there is a competitive drive to have this ability to have this resource in-house as well. So, so can I ask, Richard, um, which natural hazards do you think will be the ones that uh, insurance and reinsurance companies and brokers will focus on most over the next 10 years in terms of their climate risk priorities? Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, that's a good question. I might Shane, let Shane comment on the specific hazards, but I mean, just to sort of re-emphasize that materiality or the importance of materiality again, you know, if you identify a, a material issue, but you're not in possession of all the facts and all the information that you need, to what degree should you prioritize action or spend off the back of that? I mean, it's, it's really challenging, you know, from a business standpoint, you should be focusing on the hazards where you can acquire enough information to inform sound decision making. And that, that may be writing policies in a certain area, as Shane mentioned earlier, or it may be taking decision not to write in that area. But unless you have, you know, valid information, you can't take that decision. I mean, short, rapid onset events like surface water flooding, for example, they're always going to be incredibly challenging to model, incredibly challenging to predict, certainly with any degree of accuracy. So it's it's a balance between understanding what's material and what actionable information you can gather. And I think what we're seeing and I, I anticipate to see over the next 10 years will be that that actionable information is uh, will evolve and it will expand um, and will place uh, the industry in a much better position. Shane. Yeah, I mean, as we sort of alluded to before, you know, we're, we're all aware of this principle and mentioned, you know, materiality and proportionality within solvency too. So those regions or perils that are most material, you're going to spend proportionately more time on. And so it's really those you know, hydrometeorological uh, region perils that you'd be focused on, like U.S. hurricane, Japanese typhoon, European wind, etc. You're obviously excluding earthquake and, and, and that sort of thing um, in, terms of, um, in, in terms of the perils that, that, that you're prioritizing on with regard to climate change. And so the AIR, we have quite a unique output called the global EP curve. So it's a global exceedance probability curve. Um, and we, what we do is we output the losses across all the models we have. And we have an estimate of exposure in all, in, in all the countries uh, that we model. And when you do that, you see that if you look at the 100-year T-VAR, so the 100-year tail value at risk, so you look at all, uh, all the risk beyond, beyond 100 year, 60% of that uh, from, on an insured basis comes from U.S. hurricane, which is quite remarkable. So one region parallel is really dominating uh, that tail. So therefore, any small changes there massively could change your, your tail risk and are worth looking into, of course, if you, you have a portfolio uh, like the industry. And so, so even if, as mentioned above, uh, you know, early on in, in, in this discussion, even if the science may be less convergent for certain perils um, than, than others, then it, certainly that materiality point is, 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 really, is really important. And then in terms of, uh, there's, you know, apart from materiality and proportionality, there's also confidence, right? Confidence of the science, as, as Richard alluded to. And so wildfire, for example, um, as well as flood, I think, 
our, our clients uh, our clients are definitely focusing on as as far as we see here. And then finally, if you look into the the, the updated model that we we just released for U.S. inland flood, that's actually the first time where we've accounted for climate change in our near present view of risk. So basically, we looked into the uh, the time series of data and we, we saw a signal where certain parts of the United States had increasing risk. Uh, from flood if we looked at more recent de- decades compared to um, decades uh, further in the past. And so, and so that's something that, that, that's definitely um, sort of changing now. And so on the hydrological aspect of hurricane or typhoon risk, you know, we have more, con- we have more confidence there, right? So we're more precipitation from a warm atmosphere and from potentially, you know, more slower moving, stronger storms, increased sea level rise and, and more storm surge would lead to, to this higher water related, uh, related risk. So can I ask you, Shane, do you think that the uh, insurance and reinsurance companies that are seen to be doing the most in terms of combating the effects of climate change will have a competitive advantage in the future, especially in the eyes of the consumer? Yeah, I mean, it's a hard, it's a hard one to say with, with sort of great, great certainty. You know, Niels Bohr, you, you probably uh, are aware of his quote, you know, prediction is, is difficult, especially if it's about the future. So me really saying anything uh, there is difficult. I think definitely there's some evidence that recruiting, for example, within the oil and gas industry has been more difficult uh, recently, given the scrutiny being placed there and, and green credentials being being really important, particularly for those, you know, Gen Z and, and millennials, and I know I say those millennials, but technically somehow I am as well. Um, in a big way, I think it'll be tied to branding and marketing. So those departments, uh, um, they're as part of those uh, companies, and if large insurers are marketing green credentials, it could impact consumer take up um, of their product. The climate change is also slow churn, though, and so will likely manifest in non-linear ways, likely resulting in unprecedented weather extremes. So the companies that are best prepared. Will, will likely have an advantage. And those companies, not just insurers, that begin looking at their decisions, particularly long-term investments through a climate lens, and begin building a climate-aware corporate culture, I think we think they'll, they'll benefit in the long run. So, Richard, can I just ask, how do you see uh, insurance and reinsurance companies help promote the green agenda by doing things such as incentivizing businesses with cheaper premiums and putting pressure on the supply chain? Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think we're definitely seeing that push and we're seeing, you know, within the broader investment community, a much greater appetite for ESG or impact investing. Um, and incidentally, you know, it's these types of investments that have held up slightly better in the aftermath of, of COVID. Um, but when we unpack that a bit more, particularly when we're talking about supply chain, Companies who perform better on ESG metrics typically have greater visibility of their supply chain. So with the threat of climate change causing more frequent supply chain disruption, those with with greater supply chain engagement, a greater understanding of where their suppliers are, what their impacts uh, that their suppliers could face, they're the ones who are probably going to stand up a bit better. And I think now, you know, certainly within our client base, we're seeing that, you know, having that visibility, having that understanding, doing those assessments, it, it's just simply doing smarter business now. And it, it's almost a, a business as usual activity. Shane. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, we've heard of of insurers and reinsurers explicitly not um, insuring or reinsuring coal mining and power, for example. And you you mentioned that uh, really at the start of this discussion. We also saw flood reefs initiatives of Build Back Better to ensure properties are more resilient against flooding and and banks worrying if their collateral uh, based on poorly energy-related homes uh, will will plummet in in value in in the future. So so certainly all things uh, that we're hearing here that's that's relevant for, for this discussion. We've seen firms, including on the insurance and reinsurance side, now actually making the investment decisions that are tied to the environmental ratings of, of the company. So, for example, you have an electric utility company, you look at the, the ESG, environmental and social uh, governance rating, uh, emissions, and, and so forth. And, and hence, you know, this can incentivize companies to focus on, on these aspects for the purposes of, of attracting investment. Uh, we've also seen examples where when firms such as you know insurers and reinsurance have major stakes in companies with high emissions, they use this stake to lobby change, such as diversification um, away from uh, from some of the more um, uh, he- heavy emissions uh, products. And so they're using this um, this position to to lobby change versus just immediately divesting and therefore not 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 having uh, as much or or, or no uh, influence. And the reinsurance industry has always been a data-driven uh, approach to uh, to understanding risk, and starting with collecting insurance, uh, collecting historical data, to embracing models for low-frequency events like like natural catastrophes, and to now investing in understanding climate change. So I think uh, as a a model of data-driven decision making, I think we we as an insurance industry have a lot to offer. Okay. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank. Um, both Richard and Shane for their time. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thanks. Thank you. I'd like to remind you to check out the Future Focus article on climate change in the latest edition of Insurance Post, which is in print online or in the App Store. And also check out the previous uh, Veris-sponsored Future Focus articles on motor, property and personal injury, which can also be found here as well. But until the next podcast, looking at the future of the London and Lloyds market, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio.